Hello, everybody. You have probably heard of sickle cell disease. This conversation takes you inside the life of someone who lives with it every day and has learned how to live life to the fullest. Andre Marcel Harris was diagnosed with sickle cell anemia in the womb. He has experienced all of the hardships of the disease, including painful crises and many hospitalizations over his 32 years. Yet, he has not let this define him. He is now a MSW PhD student at the University of Houston Graduate College of Social Work, my college, and in the process has garnered numerous awards and accomplishments. You can check this out in his bio. He is now well-known in our community as a sickle cell advocate and other kinds of advocacy, as you will find out. I also found out that he is the survivor of male sexual assault. And we will talk about that in our conversation also. Shout out to Dr. Suzanne Pritzker in the college for introducing Andro to me. My interest in sickle cell advocacy is both personal and professional. I have a form of sickle cell disease called SC disease. My sister, Judy, whom I've mentioned in many blog posts, also had it. Here's Andre. I am really so pleased that he was willing to share his life with us. Hello, everybody. I am totally pleased to welcome Andre Marcel Harris here. Andre is a PhD MSW student at our college, the Graduate College of Social Work at the University of Houston. I met him because he posted a wonderful paper about his experience with sickle cell disease and advocacy for it. Asked the facu a faculty member, do you know Andre? She said, I sure do. And she referred me to Andre and we've been off and on connecting ever since. Andre has more accomplishments than you would ever think of somebody in their early thirties would have. He's got the PhD MSW. He's on the board of the Sickle Cell Association of Houston. He's done all kinds of advocacy. He studied in China. Phi uh, Alpha Honor Society and then Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> and I could go on. So, and in between all of this, he has time actually to serve on the Sickle Cell Board. He recruited me to come to the blood drive that he initiated at the Graduate College of Social Work. The, the college sponsored it, but it was Andre's labor and love that got it there. So long way of saying, welcome, Andre. Thank you so much, Dr. Jean. Cool. All right. So let's start off with explaining to people what is sickle cell. Absolutely. I can definitely explain what sickle cell is. And it's basically a group of inherited red blood cell um, disorders. And um, they're characterized by mutation in the hemoglobin beta gene. And simply, 
this hemoglobin, this hemoglobin mutation makes cells which normally live, red blood cells, which normally live 120 days, um, die early. Um, and so sickle cells normally only survive 10 to 20 days. And these sickle cells, because of this mutation, they're deprived of oxygen and they become rigid. Um, we know that sickle cell, uh, regular red blood cells are round, um, but when that mutation happens, um, it deforms that roundness and, and it turns into a banana or a, a C-shape or a sickle shape, that's where we get the name, um, and, it, and it deforms into a sickle shape. And when it gets that deformation, Dr. Jean, um, uh, those cells become sticky um, and rigid, and that's where the pain and a lot of the complications that is associated with sickle cell comes from. So explain the connection between rigidity becoming rigid and pain. What, why does that matter? Yeah, so, uh, and, and, I, and to be clear to those who are listening, I am a uh, MSW PhD student and not an MD student. So I'm more um, knowledgeable about social um, uh, issues rather than medical issues. But because I do live with sickle cell and because I'm an advocate, I do know a little bit about it. So I, I can't get too technical, but I can answer the fact that um, when that uh, mutation happens, and like I said, that rigidity happens, it makes the, the, uh, the cells sticky and it makes them hard um, and it makes them harder to pass through blood vessels. And that's what we call vasoocclusion. Um, and the hallmark of sickle cell disease is a vasoocclusion. We call it the hallmark of sickle cell disease pain. And uh, that pain is what they call clinically a vasoocclusive crisis. So a lot of people are that are familiar with sickle cell hear people say, well, I'm having a crisis. So that's where we get the term crisis from, a vasoocclusive crisis. And that rigidity can scrape against your blood vessels. Um, so that's where you feel that pain. Um, and if you know anything about blood, it's present in every part of our body. So it can affect from head to toe. So sickle cell patients are predisposed to having strokes. I had a stroke, um, to having issues in the organs, in the lungs, um, kidneys. So it's, it's a disease that can affect really every part of your body. Okay, thank you. That's good. And I certainly, I, I think people would be bored to death if you used a whole bunch of medical terms. So, yeah. so what <laughs> and I would never be able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you're explaining is perfect. So, so here's a question I frequently get asked. How do you get it? Yes. Yeah, so the inheritance of sickle cell disease, and I also get asked this question, Dr. Jeannie, um, it's not communicable. It's not contagious. It's not something that you could develop um, over time, you are born with sickle cell, it is inherited. So um, a child is born with sickle cell when they receive at least two uh, copies of uh, sickle cell genes, one from each parent. So um, in one of the trainings I've, I've taken, one of the workshops I've been in, um, this uh, anecdote stuck with me. Think about the, imagine the fetus going to an imaginary shopping mall or a, a, a supermarket. And the, the baby is, you know, walking down the aisle and there's uh, stacks of food on each aisle. On the left hand, they pick up one gene and put it in their cart. 
on the right hand, they pick up one gene and put it in their cart. So just say the left hand side was the mom, the right hand side was the dad. Um, if, if that child were to grab one copy of the sickle cell trait from both parents, they have a, um, uh, they have a chance of uh, being born with sickle cell disease. And one thing I do want to say, so if, say if both parents, and I, again, I won't get too technical, but say if both parents had the trait, sickle cell trait, um, it, uh, each pregnancy, there is a chance for that child to inherit sickle cell disease by um, 25%. Um, and so a lot of people think that it's only uh, that 25% is like over the lifetime of that, that, that family's reproductive history. Each pregnancy, they're running the gamut of that child possibly having the disease. Um, but again, I don't want to <laughs> get too technical. Okay, that was a great explanation. Okay, so in my case, there are other, you had said it in your introduction, that there are different forms of sickle cell. And the most common one is called the S, which is what is the sickle cell disease is composed of. But, and it's from Africa. And it was, it developed over time to combat malaria, correct? Yes, I will like to preface that there are hundreds and I, I did do a hemoglobinopathy um, counselor course several years ago, but there are hundreds of different hemoglobinopathies. There are hundreds of different um, categorizations of sickle cell uh, uh, traits. There's SC, there's SE, SD, and there's a lot. Um, and a lot of them are regionally found. Um, but uh, SC is um, clinically known to be the less severe um, than SS. I have type SS, which is clinically called sickle cell trait. I mean, I'm sorry, sickle cell anemia. Um, and that's clinically called the most severe. Now, I want to preface again, I'm not a doctor, but this is what we're taught. Um, each person expresses the disease differently. But mostly people who have SS have a more severe manifestation of the disease. Um, that is probably the most rudimentary way I could explain that between the difference between SS, which I have, and SC with other people like you and other uh, people may have. Okay. So my sister and I have SC. And the way, way we tracked it was my mother had the S. And a father had the C. The difference between the S and the C is that the C di uh, dies fast. It has one sixth the shelf life of a normal uh, cell, blood cell, a, a normal uh, uh, blood cell. Whereas the S is one sixth the shelf life. And the upshot of it for me, since I have more C than S in my bloodstream, I'm chronically anemic, slightly anemic because I have wonderful medical care. I'm, I used to be severely anemic, but I'm only slightly anemic now. My sister was a sickler because she had more S than C. So explain to them, you have explained the sickle cell crisis. Do you use the term sickler? That, and I'm, I'm actually glad that you brought that up. <laughs> Because um, in my experience, not only as a patient, but as an advocate, that is 
that's been an area of discussion that I can remember. I'm 32. I can remember this being a, a, a topic of discussion since I was a child. I personally don't use sickler, but I also don't um, condemn other people who use that term because here's how I how I think about it. Um, we're all different. We're not monoliths. People you in different regions, different states, different areas use different terms in different ways. But from my personal experience, um, the term sickler has been weaponized against me and my community um, in like emergency room settings and other settings to really criminalize us and uh, characterize sickle cell patients as drug seeking and um, not really being truthful about our pain and really trying to catastrophize about our pain to get high off narcotics. When <laughs> um, So there's a lot of social and stig uh, stigmatized issues around that word personally, but however, um, but that's really why, but however, like I said, if someone chooses, because I know there is a cache of people that are advocates or, or sickle cell patients that they use that word and they feel empowered by that word. So who am I to tell them not to use it? Well, thank you. That was a great explanation. So how would you distinguish between my sister and me? Because she had crises and I didn't. What would you, how would you explain that difference? I mean, I've had yes. one, but I haven't yeah. had, I didn't have just multiples like she did. Yeah. So how we're taught is um, one of my, and I would call her one of my unofficial mentors. I have someone who is um, dear to me, close to me, and who whose father is actually a pioneer in sickle cell um, treatment. He was a doctor, and she's also a hematologist, but her name is Dr. Wanda Witten-Sherney. And Dr. Sherney teaches a sickle cell one-on-one -on -one course every year at our national convention. And this is one thing that I always will remember. She says, think of sickle cell as snowflakes. And we're taught in science in school that there is no snowflake that is the same. Um, so that is the same for sickle cell patients. Um, again, I have a genotype SS. Someone else who has genotype SS can have a manifestation of the disease that's totally different from my experience, but we still are validated to know that we both have the same disease. Um, I know people who have SS who have very mild presentations and very mild manifestations of sickle cell. I know people with SC who have severe manifestations and, and are get sicker than I do. Um, so we're all different. People's bodies uh, respond to disease and, and illnesses differently. Um, so that is probably the best way for me to answer that question is that we're all snowflakes. Um, and that's kind of what brings the difference between you and your sister, both having SC and both having differences in how it manifested in you. Okay, good. Okay, so take us through the journey of a sickle, a person with sickle cell. I could give you some highlights, like I said. So uh, for those listening, I will be 33 in March. So I'm 32, was born in 1989. And, and in my short 32 years, I've gone through a lot. Um, one of the first uh, big, I guess, hoo-hahs <laughs> that I had with dealing with sickle cell um, is when I was the age of two, I had a, a major stroke 
And um, like I said before, a lot of sickle cell patients have strokes because, again, that blood can uh, get sticky and rigid and it can clot in veins. And so um, I had a blood clot, you know, uh, strokes are, you know, blockages in the brain. And so there was a clot, um, a, a blockage that happened and I had a stroke. Um, my parents uh, told me the story about how I think they were getting me ready for daycare. They were going to work. Um, and my mom was getting me dressed and noticed that um, my right side was not uh, being responsive. It was droopy and, you know, limping. And so she thought it was very strange. My grandmother is a nurse. And so my mother uh, decided to call uh, my grandmother and ask her, you know, uh, you know, what's going on? You know, we're probably going to take a in, you know, just letting you know. And she was like, yeah, this sounds like a stroke. You need to take them in now. And um, actually, to add a personal story to it, my late father, I remember they always used to tell me uh, they didn't want to wait and call the ambulance. My dad um, took me and put me in his car and sped to the hospital. Um, and I was born in Michigan. So um, imagine um, uh, my dad like speeding in snow. Um, trying to get me to an emergency room. And he actually got pulled over by the police while I was in the car. And he was telling the officer, sir, I know I'm speeding, but my son is having a stroke. And he looks in the back seat and sees a baby in a baby seat. And, you know, when they hear, when people think about strokes, they don't think that a baby can have a stroke. And so the officer thought my dad was lying to get out of the ticket. He got a ticket. And he had to go and dispute it and, and, and all of that. But I say all of that to say um, that was probably one of the uh, uh, first ordeals that me and my family went through as it relates to sickle cell disease. Of course, that stroke continues to, um, I don't want to say haunt me, but continues to affect me 30 years later. Um, I can't uh, wiggle my toes on my right foot. Um, and I have very limited range of motion on my in my right ankle, but I can also walk. <laughs> I can also <laughs> use my right hand. Don't we? <laughs> yeah, so um, a lot of people um, try to use that as a point of pity. Um, yes, it did happen to me. I don't want people to think that I, I, I'm going to ignore what happened. But um, and I don't also what I'm about to say. I don't want this to sound insensitive, but. Um, you live, you learn, life moves on, and you continue to find life in every day that you're, I, I think people that have chronic illnesses like sickle cell learn how to enjoy life because I, I don't want to sound morbid, you never know. And even someone who doesn't have a chronic illness, you just never know when your time may come. And so it, it's imperative to, to learn how to enjoy life every day. Yes, I agree with that. But uh, so let's go back to when you were two. Did your parents know you have had sickle cell anemia at the time? Yes. And and I probably should have said that I should have started there. But so my again, my grandmother um, was uh, RN for like 30 years. I think she retired as a retired nurse. She's 85 now, of course. But um when I was born in the 80s, uh, my grandmother knew that my dad had the trait. My dad knew because she was a nurse. So, you know, she was, you know, big on that type of information. So my dad knew he had the trait. My mother did not. 
my grandmother knew that she had two, my grandmother had five kids. She knew that she had two children with the trait. But if I'm not mistaken, my mom told me that in the 80s in Michigan, when you uh, filed to get a marriage license or something of that nature, that they they made you take some type of uh, genetic testing anyway. So they they tested me before I was even born. Um, while I was still, you know, being carried by my mother, they were able to find out that I had sickle cell disease. Okay. So they knew. So it wasn't a shock. So when you, the stroke happened, they were at least they were horrified, but at least they were a little forewarned of what could happen. Right. Okay. And how many crises or hospitalizations have you had? How have you done? Um, I really, maybe one day I could try to estimate, but Dr. Jean, um, if I gave an estimation, I would probably say 250 or more. Wow. I, I, I honestly that may be astronomically too high or astronomically too low. But um, when I was younger, I, I I remember I used to get sick a lot. And when I mean a lot, um, I remember there was a time I would sometimes be admitted into the hospital multiple times a month, maybe sometimes two or three times a month. <laughs> okay. Well, that, that's a that's a great answer that 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 brings the thing home in it but I, that's okay going. so you have you had this you have the disease you've had the experience of the pain what do what happens I don't I don't know how to say this let me just say what happens when my sister used to have her crises I had a routine if I went with her to the hospital the routine was she'd be she'd sit in the waiting room in pain. I'd go and beg and plead for the folks to jump her ahead. You know, she didn't have a gun gunshot, so she wasn't high on the priority lead, uh, list, but sitting up would be hard. And so I'd beg and plead and try to get her uh, to a place where she could at least lie down. So I'd wet tiles, heat them up in the mic, ask the nurse, where's the microwave, heat them in the microwave, put the wet tiles on her until they could give her something for the pain. So that was my routine. Did you have anything similar? Um, I honestly didn't have anything like that similar to that, but I will say um, I would always make sure that they knew that I was there and that <laughs> I was having a crisis. So you sometimes would have to wait and wait and wait, right? To be treated mm-hmm. and to get a mm-hmm. room. Yes. And very quickly, there was a time where I waited about 15 hours in the waiting room before I was even triaged. Well, before I was even taken back to a room in pain. Um. So yeah, that's a whole book in itself, but. Yes. So let's talk about the narcotic business. Okay, so I'm taking my sister to get treated. The doctor said she had to go through an anesthesiologist. He couldn't prescribe any more of the ongoing pain stuff. So we go, and then now she has to prove that she's not a druggie. And so the anesthesiologist is asking questions. Are you addicted? And, And and trying to verify. Did you go through anything like that? No, and I'm actually astounded to hear that someone had to go through that. I've never. 
I took her once to the pain doctor. She was in a lot of pain and the doctor kept asking her questions and started asking her about her drug take, intake and all of that with the inference, I need to make sure you're not a drug addict before I figure um, out how to sus- prescribe stuff to you. Wow. So that's, that, ha- that happened. And she said when she go to the hospitals, the doctors and the nurses would treat her, wonder if she was on drugs. Did you get that? Now that I did have experienced multiple times. Yes. Um, I could, if you would like me to, to uh, I've had times where I've even had nurses while I was admitted. Um, you know, when you're admitted, you can request, you know, you could call the nurse and say, hey, I'm in pain. I, you know, the doctor wrote me an order. Can you give me my pain meds? And I had a nurse who was, I think, from the Bahamas. And she said, we don't give our sickle cell patients narcotics in the Bahamas. We only give them Tylenol. And she basically said, you patients here in the, in the United States are spoiled um, and you just need to tough it out. Yeah. And I, I never felt so belittled or embarrassed or insulted um, as a patient and probably until then. Um, yeah, I, I, there's so many stories, but that, that's a short and sweet one I could give you. Yeah, that, that is the experience that uh, my sister went through and I went through with her to um, the times I had to take her to get treatment. So there's this whole I'm going to ask you a a question about pain medication. Sickle cell patients are predominantly Black. We haven't established that. There are some Mediterraneans, Italians, whatever, but but it's primarily Black. There's the association of narcotics with Black people, just in the stereotypical uh, uh, mindset. So when a sickle cell patient shows up, for pain medication, there's always the question, do you need this much? Are you addicted? And if you need it recurrently, if you need ongoing pain medication, for an example, then why do you need it? Why is it so much? Are you sure you're not addicted? And what Judy, my sister used to say all the time is there's a difference between addiction and dependency, I think was the word she used. She was dependent on narcotics to function because she was, you know, her body was in a constant state of crisis somewhere, mm-hmm. but she wasn't addicted. You said that um, your sister would delineate between being addicted and dependent. Okay. So the question is, have you, do you make that distinction? Yes. Um, and so I, I've never made it that succinctly, and I actually may be taking that <laughs> and putting it in my back pocket. But I tell people that uh, we're not addicted, but we um, do rely on these uh, on narcotics. Honestly, and I told you about the the nurse from the Bahamas, but Tylenol does not address pain of someone in sickle cell crisis. Um, and I just want to center it and say that. Um, what, how would someone feel if they learned that their friend who had breast cancer was denied narcotic medication? Most people would be outraged, right? Most people would be uh, enthralled in a, in a bitter rage and write a letter to the hospital or, you know, something 
to to express how uh, you know disrespected they feel because you know someone they know and they love was denied pain medication. It's the same way, and and again, I I don't ever do this to compare diseases or to try to make one to be better than the other. We're all struggling for resources, attention, and things like that. But um, sickle cell disease does need more attention than cancer, I will say. But this is not a competition. My point in doing that is to say that we have socialized what diseases deserve what treatment. And as you said, Dr. Jean, because in this country, the majority of people who have sickle cell disease are Black, a lot of the anti-Black racist ideas that this country has honestly been built on and has been baked in, um, they, they show and rear their ugly heads in the medical field. And so if a person is racist outside um, in their outside lives, um, they're, when they put on a white coat to go to work as a doctor, that does not it's not checked at the door. And so if they have, you know, discriminatory views or stigmas or prejudices that they hold outside, when they come and they work as a doctor in the emergency room, those follow them there too. Um, and so we really have to uh, pull down that stronghold and really um, dismantle the idea that sickle cell patients are drug seekers. Actually empirical research that patients are not drug addicts. Um, and that we only use it when we have to, um, and that many sickle cell patients don't want to be on narcotics, but they know that that's really the only way to get out of pain. Um, because, you know, narcotics come with side effects. You know, it's not all about the euphoric feeling, um, but, you know, constant and not to get, you know, nitty gritty, but narcotics um, predisposes you to um, terrible constipation. It predisposes you to um, nausea. It predisposes you to neuropathy. Um, a lot of people don't even know that you could have neuropathy and you, you're on so many narcotics that your nervous system is even changed and it doesn't respond correctly. So now you have to deal with those side effects. Um, there's so many different uh, issues that come along with narcotics, but we understand um, that that's, you know, what helps us get out of those crises and that pain. And, and before I, in this point, is a lot of us, especially in my generation that were born maybe in the late 80s and early 90s, and we're, you know, in our um, early adult, and most of us are millennials, we're trying to seek out alternative, you know, medicine um, options like uh, acupuncture. And we're trying to seek out, you know, trying to see what type of dietary um, changes can we make. We're trying to find these uh, alternatives to reduce our need for narcotics. But when we get to that point, we still need access to them. And so that is the conversation that needs to be had. Yes, that's a, yes, that's a thank you. Very well said. And yes, it's a conversation to be had because the push now is to withdraw, withhold narcotics from patients because of the opiate crisis. Mm -hmm. And what that means is a sickle cell patient now has trouble getting the medication they need to have a functioning life. Mm -hmm. So, okay, thank you. Did beautifully on that. Thank you so much. So now let's talk about survival, thriving. Okay. In the when when you and I talked before this, and I looked at your bio, 
it mentioned that you were working on, it wasn't prevention, uh, advocacy for male victims of sexual abuse. Say something about that, and then we're going to tie it together in terms of survival. Of course. Um, So I am myself a a survivor of sexual assault, Um, sexual assault. I um, was uh, abused by my female babysitter when I was in elementary school. Um, And then also um, uh, when I got older by um, a male. Um, And as I said before to you, before we started recording, I believe um, that it's very imperative to make sure that people are educated and um, hear that. Uh, I think in our American society, the way we've been socialized, a lot of people believe that um, sexual abuse and assault only happens to women. And again, I don't want this to sound like I'm trying to co-opt this space or rob this space because we we definitely understand that women um, are you know survivors and they have been um, victims for a long time and that they and you know of course um, deal with this type of uh, sexual abuse on a daily recurring basis in some spaces so I don't want to invalidate that but I do want to elevate the voices of men who maybe like me who had a babysitter or who had a friend in school or there's so many other uh, uh, scenarios. But the issue is, is that a lot of men who are victims are terrified to speak up. They may be married, they may have children and their wives and their child does not know. Um, And I found um, just... uh, and, and I, I promise I'm going to make this short. So there was one day I was watching a, a, a Law and Order episode, and this was the topic. And I just felt compelled. I got on Facebook and I said, I'm a survivor of sexual assault. Um, that was really the first time I ever mentioned it publicly. Um, this was maybe five or six, maybe seven years ago at this point. Um, and I received so many messages, Dr. Jean, people, men at my church, um, men from my school, um, said your Facebook post inspired me to tell my wife that my pastor molested me or your Facebook post inspired me to tell my son that my gym coach molested me and to be watchful or to, you know, it, it, inspired a conversation. And I don't want to say this to be pretentious to glorify myself, but I just want to say that it the conversation, this conversation also needs to be had because we believe that men are hypersexual and always want and welcome every type of sexual encounter. And that's not true. Um, especially as in, in, in my sense, I was a child when both of these um, events occurred. And so male victims who are children are even encouraged, oh, you should have enjoyed it. You should have liked it, especially if it's a- Children? I, I mean, I, I don't want to take over this podcast, but I, I could really explain. But um, if a male was uh, abused, it, it was a victim of from a female, of course. Now, the only time it's really demonized is when another man rapes or molests another man. But I won't get into those delineations. But the overarching theme is just to really empower the voices of men who've been 
victimized and really allow them to know that they can tell their story if they so choose to. Um, and that they don't have to live in shame and stigma that they are men who, because we're, we're taught in our American society that men are protectors and that they have to be strong. You know, I was born in the 80s, so I was even raised in that still old, old school mindset that men don't cry and men don't show emotion. You know, these are things that we are taught, whether inadvertently or advertently as children. And so we're raised to believe, oh, I'm a man, I can't say anything. And so to put a bow on it, that is really what moved me to be open with it and to get involved. And so since then, I've been involved in that cause often on sickle cell is my primary cause, but I am passionate about this as well. Wow. Okay, so here- Trying to keep it short. <laughs> yeah, no, you did a beautiful job of that. This is a, a, a fascinating. So did you, you grew up with sickle cell. Did you have shame around having sickle cell? I can never remember a time. You never. did not. Okay, I did. And my sister talked me out of it. I, I didn't want to even talk about it. And Ju and my sister said, Jean, people don't know. People think sickle cell means you're not functioning and all that. You have to let people know. You have to come out. So, okay. So you came out with your sexual abuse. You didn't have to come out with the sickle cell. I had to come out with the sickle cell. My question for you, Andre, is you had the sickle cell from day one with the horrifying experience beginning at age two. By the way, do you remember that any part of that age two experience? I don't. <laughs> okay. So, okay. So you, but your parents obviously do. So you've had that, you've had hundreds of hospitalizations. You've had the chronic pain and then you've had so sexual assault on top of that. And out of all of that tragedy and horror, and grief comes you with yeah. all of these accolades and accomplishments and things that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. So my question to you, without being modest, <laughs> you said somewhere just now you were talking about, I don't, with all due humility, I wanna be, I want you to be <laughs> not modest, because you have been through stuff and people out there who are looking at what they're going through, I want them to know how you survived and thrived anyway. Yeah. Well, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a loaded question that could probably turn into a book or a dissertation, some type of exhaustive um, trilogy series. Give a, um, give a preview, just a preview. <laughs> yeah, I can give a preview and say that, um, not to be corny, but, you know, we're taught that diamonds are, you know, formulated in, in rough situations, right? The diamonds come out of the rough. Um, I, I just think that um, in order to achieve greatness, that you really have to have some type of experience. You have to have some type of life experience. Um, I'll say this to kind of couch it as an advocate. I, I walk in my authority as a sickle cell advocate, as a sexual assault 
advocate because I know that nothing trumps the lived experience. Um, you could always find somebody that has a PhD to talk to you about whatever subject, but um, it's rare to find someone who's lived a specific life. Um, and so that's kind of really how I, I, I envision it is that I have to have some type of um, I have to have some type of mess to have a message, <laughs> not to get dirty. <laughs> but <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I grew up in the church, so I have a lot of those. But uh, <laughs> one, one, that's one my pastor used to say um, a lot when he was preaching. But I, that really resonates with me. But um, I don't want to make this into a you know religious thing. But you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, people. Um, look at, you know, uh, characters in the Bible or whatever religious texts, and a lot of them have hard lives or hard issues that they face, but they become great um, in their, their life story. And so just to answer your question, um, I decided um, at a young age that no matter what I experience, no matter what happens, that I am not going to take no for an answer. So let me tell you what I mean by that. Um, you talked about all of my accomplishments and all of my um, wonderful things that I've accomplished at 32. Um, because of my sickle cell, I went to, uh, so I started undergrad in the fall of 2007. Um, I was 18, just got out of high school. I did two years at a private uh, uh, four-year institution. I got sick. And I had to step away from school and then the housing crisis happened and my parents couldn't afford the private education anymore. So I ended up having to step away from school. So for about six or seven years, I wasn't in school. I went back to an HBCU in North Carolina public institution. Um, and this is not to co-op this space to talk about HBCUs, but I'm so grateful for my HBCU undergraduate ed education because it taught me a lot. And wait, this is wait one hang of on, hang on. Explain what an HBCU is and give credit Absolutely. to your alma mater. I will. I'm trying not to. I'm, I'm making a point. So I didn't want to, to. So but yes, um, HBCUs are historically black colleges or universities. And I graduated from Fayetteville State University in Fayetteville, North Carolina in 2019, December 2019, with my bachelor's in social work. Um, but uh, I transferred in in 2017. And one thing that I learned when I got there, I was a, a non-traditional student, a little older than most undergraduates. I didn't live on campus. Um, but I wanted to take advantage of every opportunity that I didn't have when I was in undergrad the first time. Um, so that's when I uh, studied abroad in China. Um, I became a Ronald McNair Scholar. So McNair Scholars do undergraduate research and my re undergraduate research was published. And then I was able to go to Bangkok, Thailand to present my research at an international research conference. Um, I've done several internships and fellowships in my undergrad experience. A lot of undergrads don't do uh, fellowships. They don't do things like that, but I had the opportunity to do so. And why is that? Because anytime I got an email that said scholarship, money, fellowship, I applied. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't let my sickle cell tell me I couldn't do it. And, and I, I promise I'm going to make this short, but I'll, I'll say this lastly to say, 
my family, my friends, my church, or whoever it may be, sometimes will say, oh, maybe you shouldn't do that because you have sickle, so you don't want to get sick, or maybe not do that, or don't go there, or you shouldn't go to China. What if you get sick? Um, and I never was scared to attack those type of opportunities. Any type of opportunity I wanted, I, if I wanted it, I was going to go after it. I And I tell people, don't self-select yourself out of an opportunity. Let them tell you no. You apply and let them tell you no. Even if, and I, I don't want people to be reckless, but even if you're not 100% qualified, because a lot of these scholarships and a lot of these fellowships that I got accepted to, I, I know I wasn't the most um, qualified candidate. But because I had the passion and I showed the desire that I wanted to do this, I was accepted. And so to answer your question, I used that antidote to answer your question is that I never accepted no for an answer. If, if I wanted to do something and I got rejected, if I knocked on the front door, I'm going to go around to the back door. If I, got, <laughs> if I get slammed in the face with the door on the back door, I'm going to go to the next house and ask them if I could do it. So All right. there's always an avenue to get what you want done. If it's a scholarship, if this company says no, find another one. Never accept defeat. Never accept defeat. So I hope that answers your You're question. You're singing my song. That's, I, I love it. Okay, so I just want to mo- ask you to modify one thing, okay? You said I might not have been the most qualified. I'm asking you to modify that to say I might have not had the highest test scores, or I might not have had the best grades, or I might not have had the strongest work experience. But were you the most qualified? Absolutely. They, they accepted you for what you brought to the table. Yes. They chose yes. you over somebody else, maybe with a higher test score for what you brought to the table. So, yes. I, okay. Do you agree with that? Okay. So, I agree with that. <laughs> okay. So, I'm, I'm not accepting that you weren't the most qualified. You were, Absolutely. which is why you got in. I love it. I agree. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, you have explained your philosophy for surviving. And I will say, you mentioned your parents or your grandmother, somebody might see this. I'm saying right now, hat off to y'all. The army, the church, the, the mother, the father, the grandmother that's behind this man, hats off to you because you raised one magnificent person who learned how to not accept no for an answer. So I wanted to say that, and I'm saying that as a parent and a, and a grandparent. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about advocacy. Okay, so we've gotten, you, we've gotten here. We understand where you came from. We understand what you've endured. Now let's talk about advocacy. People need to understand what it means to advocate. How, what is it that you're doing to advocate for sickle cell disease? What is it that you're doing to advocate for uh, men of, who've experienced sexual assault? So talk about the field of advocacy and specifically what you've done. Of course. Um, so I mentioned when I gave that small story that there was a time where I had to leave undergrad. And so 
Um, I even started working and I even had to stop working because I would always get sick, right? So um, there was a time where I was in my parents' house. I had to move back in with my parents. Um, and I didn't have a job. I was collecting unemployment. And I don't want to say I was becoming depressed, but I was getting frustrated because nothing seemed to work out. And I said, well, I have something to offer. I have to do something. There has to be somewhere I could be useful. And so I said, well, I could be, I always wanted to be more involved in the sickle cell community. Honestly, I've been an advocate my whole life. My parents always had me at meetings, took me to conferences, conventions, but I wanted to do, I said, you know what, let me do be more involved. So I honestly, Dr. Jean, I reached out to the president of the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America at that time, which is the preeminent uh, advocacy organization in this country for sickle cell disease. Um, and I emailed her and I said, hey, I would love to get more involved in advocacy. Um, I'm just, you know, reaching out to, you know, see where, you know, I could, you know, go, what to do, you know, what are your pieces of advice. And so at that time, they just had uh, won a, a grant from a, a funding agency to train advocates. And it's all about uh, divine timing. And I don't mean this from a Christian oh, yeah. perspective, but whatever higher calling you ascribe to, I, I believe in divine providence. And so what are the odds that the time that I emailed her, they just got that grant. So she said, apply. And basically when you apply, you'll get it right. So I applied to become an advocate. So I was a part of the initial um, group that were trained as official sickle cell advocates. We were flown to Atlanta. We took part of a weekend long training. And since then, my advocacy has grown. Um, and, and what happens is uh, pharmaceutical companies reach out to me because I, you know, I've developed a reputation. I'll tell you about how really quickly, but pharmaceutical companies reach out to me. Government agencies reach out to me. I've worked with uh, CDC, NIH, um, HHS, other government agencies. Um, and, and divisions within those agencies and, and nonprofits and educational. I've done um, seminars at universities. Um, just so many different people will reach out to me. Um, and that's how I become an advocate. I love being doing seminars. I love doing workshops. I love educating about the social um, impacts of sickle cell disease. A lot of people don't talk about that. Um, and, and so here's a point. If you find a niche area as a, an advocate, you can find um, uh, a way to really market yourself. If you're talking about everything that everybody else is talking about, nobody's going to seek you out specifically. But if you have a specific niche that you talk about and everybody knows that when they contact me, I'm going to talk about social um, determinants of health and health equity and the social impacts of sickle cell disease. So that's kind of what brings um, my worth to the table. And so uh, that's how I got involved and that's what I continue to do. And so in my advocacy career, I always talk about the as a trained BSW, MSW and almost PhD student, as a PhD student, I talk about the social impacts of the disease and how we could provide socially for people with a chronic disease. And that's why people seek me out and that's why I'm a, a good advocate. That's what I do. That's magnificent. So how can we provide for the social needs of sickle cell oh. patients? And you family. know what? This, this, 
Hospice this is something, yeah, collapse very it. short. Collapse <laughs> it. Yeah, hopefully this is something that I could uh, uh, address while I'm a PhD student at the GCSW. But honestly, Dr. Ladding, um, and I'm sure you know, but um, I believe as a social worker that housing is health care. I believe in transportation equity. I believe in a lot of those social determinants of health. So for me, I, I remind um, uh, those communities that I talked about, those stakeholders, that you really have to provide um, social support in helping people get to their appointments because a lot of sickle cell patients are Black in this country and we understand the historical issues around Black people in this country. We were redlined in the early 1900s. Um, there have been systemic, you know, we had to boycott buses. So transportation has been inherently racist. I mean, you could you could dig deep in the history of almost every bucket of the social determinants of health and find a racist history. We have to find a way to equitably provide social support and transportation, housing. Um, if I don't have adequate housing, um, there's research that shows that my health care will not be adequate. Um, so those are things that are passionate, um, are passions of mine, and hopefully I can continue to talk about as a PhD student and a, and a future researcher. Okay, so you focus on health inequities and the sub social supports that's needed for a patient. A friend of mine's mother has uh, a number of diseases, a number of things, and the medical plan she's in actually covers her Uber driver to get her to and from appointments. I was blown away. Yes. I said, you've got to be kidding. He said, no, that's what they do. They, yes. they, they come and get her. He's not in this state. So, you know, the worry that's on him about care of his mother, but he found this provision for her. So that's the same thing. That's what you're talking about. Yes. The extra, the extra things to make sure people get the health care they need, the medical care mm -hmm. they need. And that's a great example. And I've actually done that before where I've been in the hospital and they were like, oh, we'll call an Uber for you. And I was blown away too. But those are simple ways for people to be able to, because if I don't have that Uber, um, I may want to come to my doctor's appointment, but I don't have the means. Um, and very, and again, I tried to be very succinct, but with that being said, a lot of patients like that are coded in their medical charts as being non-adherent, non-compliant, uh, non and you can't call somebody non-compliant if you don't know the reasons why. Everybody is not nonchalant about their medical care. Most of the time, there are social, you know, barriers in the way that is allowing them to be total participants in their health. So before you code a patient to be non-compliant, find out why. If they miss an appointment, find out why. I, I noticed you missed your appointment. Is there something we could do to help you to get here next time? Too easy. Some of these problems that we have, that we face, I feel like they're trivial. It's very easy to fix. Like you said, just call them an Uber. End of discussion. <laughs> right. Okay, well, I am all inspired. This I'm inspired. Been... I really am honored to be here. Thank you. <laughs> well, I'm inspired. Uh, this is, this is uh, obviously something that's close to me. 
personally and professionally. You have done our profession well in terms of standing up for what it is that we do. And I just thank you for your time. And I thank you for being here. And a shout out to your parents and your grandmother. (laughs) I would definitely make sure that they hear that. (laughs) I, I shouldn't end it on them. I'll end it on you. You stayed with it. And I am so admiring of that. You took myth and used it and converted it into a message that you're delivering very effectively. And I thank you for that. There's so many takeaways in this conversation with Andre. I'll name just my top three. First, I hope you gained more information about the terrible effects sickle cell disease can have on a person's body. Sickle cell is poorly understood, so I hope you gained some knowledge about it. Second, I want to note the terrible effects that sickle cell can have on a person's body. Because Black people are stereotyped as drug addicts and sickle cell patients are predominantly Black, Just showing up in pain in a medical treatment facility makes a person suspect. I hope you make a mental note of that. This country is rightfully concerned about the opiate crisis, but let's not generalize and make it that all narcotics are bad. Some people need them just to get through the day. Third, Andre's period and thirst for life was just so impressive to me. He is also the survivor of sexual assault as well as a person living with a chronic illness. Yet as he said, he's never let that stop him. I can't overstate how impressed I am with his approach to life. He said he just does not accept no for an answer. That's his philosophy. I could have jumped out of my chair when he said that. When I talk with people who want to make a difference in the world, this is one of the first things I emphasize. Your problems and challenges may be personal and hard for you, but you can't grow muscles without stressing them. And as he said, you can't have a message without a mess. We can all take note. Hope you gained as much from the discussion as I did. Please check out Pathfinders, our membership program. You can find it on our website. Also, we would love it if you would subscribe to our blog and tell others about us. Feel free to share this conversation and thank you for listening.